Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England, Case Profiles Edition. Hello, welcome back to another mini episode. Hi, thank you for joining us on our 30th installment of our Case Profiles. We are so happy to have you here. That's a lot of cases of people of color that we've been bringing out to you guys. That's exciting. To be honest, I thought we'd be done at this point with these case profiles because I didn't think we'd have this many to cover. Yeah, so thank you guys so much for those of you that have sent us in cases. We'll have more information for you on how to do that at the end of this episode. But for those of you that are not familiar with our mini episodes, our case profiles, it is where we tell you and each other cases of people of color in New England who just do not get enough media coverage, media attention, and attention from law enforcement. And as a result, most are unfortunately unsolved. As most of you know, a large majority of New England is predominantly white. That's just how our region is. And as a result, a lot of the people of color who are victims of crime in this area, whether it be murder, abduction, suspicious death, etc., they tend to just not get as much media coverage for whatever reason. And so our goal for these case profiles is to shed a light on that. And we try and do that in literally whatever way we can. Yeah, so the format that we use is Liz will tell you guys and myself about a case that she has researched, and I will do the same. So any kind of exclamations, gasps, oh shit, no way, that's crazy, things that we might say are because we are hearing each other's case for the first time along with you guys. We know the name of the person that we are going to be talking about. Same with, you know, I know the name of the person that Liz is going to be talking about and she knows who I'm going to talk about, but we really don't know much more than that. So any information we're hearing, we are hearing for the first time. Absolutely. And because it is case profiles number 30, that means it is my turn as Katie, you went first last time. And I'm going to be telling you, Katie, and our lovely listeners, the story of the murder of Edward Bell Jr. Such a sophisticated name. Yeah. My sources today come from three places, surprisingly, although there is not very much information in any of them. I have an article from the CT Post, an article from Fox 61 News, as well as an obituary for Edward from Carmen Funeral Home. Let's get into it. So, Edward Little Man Bell Jr., was born in Hartford, Connecticut, on July 21st, 1970. Side note, I've noticed a lot lately we've had a lot of Massachusetts and Connecticut cases. Especially in Hartford. Yes. I think that's pretty telling. Yeah. And we don't really see a lot from the other four states of New England very often at all. It's interesting. So Edward, or Little Man as he liked to be called, was a graduate of Bulkley High School and was known to love literally anything that had to do with cars and sports. Specifically, his sport of choice was basketball, which is awesome. I I don't know that much about basketball, so I'm not sure if... I don't think there's a basketball team in Connecticut. I know, of course, the Boston Celtics, but I'm not really familiar much more with basketball like I am the Red Sox, Patriots. So whatever team, he was just big into basketball. As an adult, he became the father of two sons, Devon and Jaquan, and he also was a father of a girl named Nadia. On May 6, 2005, Bell was on George Street in Hartford, Connecticut, when suddenly there was a fist fight. He was standing there with his buddies, and all of a sudden it just happened. 
Randomly, in the middle of this fistfight, gunshots were heard. More than one. And once the crowd cleared, it was discovered that Edward had been shot. He was laying in the street. He clearly was injured. He was bleeding. And we've talked about this before. And we've mentioned this recently in full episodes and case profiles. Despite there being witnesses, despite there being other people injured, despite there being people who needed help, 911 was called and ambulances arrived, but no witnesses said anything. It just so happened that people cleared the area just in time to not be able to leave a statement or provide anything to the police that would be of any help to tell who shot Edward, father of three, who was literally just standing there minding his own business. He wasn't even part of the fight. Yeah, I don't know. I, it was so hard to tell. And even if he was, exactly, he brought out a gun. It was a fist fight. And regardless, that's not something you should be shot and killed over. Like, that's so... And, wow. Yeah. It was a little after 11.30 p.m. that night when Edward arrived to the hospital and he was very shortly afterwards pronounced dead. He had died from multiple gunshot wounds. It is unclear the role that he did play in the fist fight. It's possible that he was a part of it. But apparently, and of course this came out after he died, the police did make a statement saying that he was known to be, quote, involved in crime. Does that make it any better? Does that make him any more deserving of death? No. So I don't know what they're trying to get at there. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the police didn't specifically say he wasn't in a gang, but they very heavily implied it, which is often what they do. And as I just said, despite there being several witnesses, and even though an ambulance was called, which sometimes doesn't even happen, so that much is a step up, nobody came forward, nobody gave any details, nothing was said. A lot of anonymous tips came in, though, later, and it only lasted a little while. Nothing ever came from them, which is usually what happens. Even with a reward of $50,000, nothing happened. Really? $50,000. I know, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I know. In 2021, a three-year grant of roughly $470,000 was given to be split between the Hartford Police Department, the Connecticut State Forensic Lab, and the state's cold case unit. And we talked a little bit about the cold case unit for Connecticut in previous, I think it was a previous full episode um it might have been a case profile where involving like the deck of cards yeah in the cold case unit yeah we've talked about that a little bit um most of these funds are being put to retesting evidence from these cold cases and some of those include edward's case he's actually in it's considered under investigation still wow rightfully so because it's not, it's not solved we know the circumstances we know that he was shot and killed in a fist fight that went wrong we don't know who did it The ultimate goal of this grant was given to these departments in Connecticut. Obviously, it was to focus on Hartford-specific cases, which is nice. And that is a big chunk of money just for Hartford. So that's awesome. And it it includes homicide, missing persons. And its goal was to try and see if old evidence could be tested in a new way, which is pretty interesting. The grant would involve investigators working with, quote, forensic genealogists 
in an attempt to analyze DNA, which could then lead to a family tree being built, and then DNA connections may be made, and we all know how that goes because so many crimes these days are being solved like that. Right. Famously, the Golden State Killer, as we all know. For example, Bell's case made the cut of this grant because there is an unknown sample of evidence that is being saved from the homicide. True story. As a last bit here, Bell's mother, Gloria Jean, was quoted as saying, There's a hole in my heart that no cardiologist could ever fix. Oh. I know. Doesn't that give you chills? Wow. So sad. She lost her son. Somebody lost their dad and their brother. It's just heartbreaking. Anyone with information is asked to call the Cold Case Unit's tip line at 860-548-0606 or the toll-free number at 866-623-8058. And that is the murder of Edward Littleman Bell Jr. Wow. Yeah. It's nice that he's being considered and a part of that large grant, though, for the city of Hartford. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know... Some of you may be thinking, or maybe no one is thinking this, that 2021, that's two years ago, almost three years ago. Why is it taking so long? Shit like this takes forever. It really does, and which is unfortunate, but it does. So hopefully within a few years' time, they'll have an answer. That'd be great. That'd be so wonderful. What do you have for me today, Katie, and our lovely listeners? I, too, have a murder based in Connecticut that is also on the Connecticut Cold Case deck of cards. Amazing. Not the murder part. The cards and the connection. Yeah. Great. I will be telling you, Liz, as well as our lovely listeners, about the murder of Elizabeth Miller. Okay. My sources today are the Hartford Current Times 2. Nice. Vizaka.com and the Deck Podcast, which I highly recommend. They do episodes on cases from Cold Case Deck of Cards across the country. Awesome. On June 11th, 1994, the body of 41-year-old Elizabeth Miller was found in an overgrown courtyard outside of a boarded-up abandoned building at 511 Huntington Street in Hartford, Connecticut, in the Asylum Hill area. Mm -hmm. A man was walking down the street in the early morning collecting cans for cash when he wandered into the courtyard and came across Elizabeth's body. She had been brutally beaten and her cause of death was ruled as blunt force trauma to the head, neck, and chest. Ouch. There was no weapon found, and police believe she was beaten against the pavement and stomped on repeatedly. Oh my god. Which is really brutal and just really aggressive. Yeah, overkill. Mm-hmm. Her jaw and larynx were fractured, and she had extensive bruising and trauma to her face. Wow. There was blood just everywhere. Blood soaked the grass, Mm. splatter all over just trash where she was dumped. It was really unnecessarily brutal. Mm. And any trauma to your face, you're going to bleed a lot just because of all the capillaries and blood vessels around your face. Right. Just with the amount of trauma that she suffered, it was really bloody. Yeah. There was an unopened condom found in Elizabeth's shirt pocket. Her pants were unzipped, but her belt was still in place which indicated that she was not sexually assaulted. Interesting. A clump of hair was found near her body that was determined to be hers. Oh. And there was also a green lighter found at the scene. Okay. That may be important for later. Oh. Here I was thinking, that's a red herring. It's just a lighter. Go on. 
It took police two days to identify her because of how badly disfigured her face was. Yeah. She did not have any ID on her at the time of her murder, which didn't really help matters. Yeah. A photograph was taken of her and shown to neighbors and those in the area. And finally, after two days, someone recognized her. Elizabeth lived with her brothers, and they hadn't initially panicked when she didn't come home. Mm -hmm. She was a sex worker for a living, and she also struggled with drug addiction. Gotcha. So it wasn't uncommon for her to be out at all hours or coming home really late in the morning, if not sometimes into the afternoon. Yeah. All evidence collected from the scene revealed no leads as to who was responsible for Elizabeth's murder. Wow. Authorities began to look into other murders that took place in the area, and some of these names may sound familiar to you guys. We actually mentioned them in our 20th mini-episode, where I covered the murder of Santa Melendez. Okay. They were thinking the murder of Santa Melendez could be related to maybe others in the area, and Elizabeth Miller is one of them. Okay, all right. 30-year-old Jacqueline Booth was fatally shot in the back on April 28, 1994, as she tried to shield her one-year-old daughter in front of 47 Sumner Street in Hartford. Ugh. That one, I think, might be an outlier. Okay. Just because of the gunshot wound and the rest seem to be blunt force trauma. But yeah. Her name is important. I feel like hers is unsolved as well. Yeah. Elizabeth Miller's body was found less than a month later on June 11, 1994, and she died, of course, from blunt force trauma to the head and neck and chest. Mm-hmm. 35-year-old Diana Ferris was found in the bathtub of her apartment at 447 Garden Street on April 11th, 1996. Mm. She was five months pregnant and was strangled with a telephone cord. Mm. Third-year-old Shirlene Crawford, who we covered on our Instagram and website on December 20th of 2021, Mm. she was found in her apartment at 48 Martin Street on August 14th, 1997. She was found in a state of progressed decomposition, and she had suffered both blunt force trauma and stab wounds Mm. to her head, neck, and chest. A man named Robert White was later convicted of her murder, so while she is an outlier, she is still important because she was originally thought to be part of this string of potential murders. Right. Hmm. 34-year-old Michael Graddick, a male sex worker who struggled with drug addiction, was found stabbed to death at 79 Sargent Street on October 15, 1997. Michael was dressed in women's clothes when he was killed, and this is believed that he was a target because of this. Okay. Five days after Michael's body was found, the body of 29-year-old Twana Smith was found at the base of a stairwell of an abandoned building at 20 Ashley Street, and she was also a sex worker. Hmm. 28-year-old LaDawn Roberts was beaten to death and left on the rear porch of a building at 272 Garden Street, which is where another one of these murders took place. Right. She was also a sex worker who was also five months pregnant at the time of her murder. No. She had died from skull crush injuries, and she was found on June 20th, 1999. She was the one of the first murders that we covered on our 20th case profile that was thinking, you know, she could be related to Santa Melendez. Okay. I, that's why I recognized her name. 33-year-old Ada Quinones was found partially dressed on April 16th, 1999 at the intersection of Capitol Avenue and Laurel Street. She was also a known sex worker and had also died from serious head trauma, suggesting, quote, she'd been the victim of somebody's rage because of a skull crush injury. Yeah. Another one. Wow. 32-year-old mother of five, Rosaline Casey, was last seen on June 9th, 1999, outside of Ashley Cafe in Hartford. The next day, her battered body was found underneath a railroad bridge at Sigourney Street and Hampstead Avenue. Her skull had also been crushed. Oof. 33-year-old Rosalie Jimenez was found on August 29, 1999 in an abandoned building on Cedar Avenue near the State Police Barracks in Hartford. 
She passed away from blunt force trauma to the head after being stomped on almost beyond recognition. Wow. 27-year-old Santa Melendez was missing for over a month before her body was found near the Treader Oak Bridge on September 12, 2000. Mm. She was also a known sex worker. In July of 2001, 37-year-old Elisa Ford's body was found. Her head was crushed, and really the only evidence from her was that there was a bloody boot print on her torso. Ugh. There were also Newport cigarettes found near her body, which I noticed just reading some of the other victims, they found Newport cigarettes or a discarded Newport cigarette box Hmm. near other victims, a handful of other victims that I had mentioned. Right. In January of 2002, DNA from the cigarette butts obtained at the scene of Alicia's murder came up as a match for a man named Matthew Stephen Johnson, who had an extensive and violent criminal history against sex workers and women, specifically in the Asylum Hill area of Hartford. That's where Elizabeth was found. Mm -hmm. And Santa and, you know, most of the other women, starting from LaDawn all the way down. Wow. Asylum Hill. Yikes. And Elizabeth Miller, of course. Wow. Despite the similarities to multiple murders, including Elizabeth's, Matthew was only charged with the murders of Ada Quinones, Rosalie Jimenez, and Alicia Ford. Hmm. Although not all of the victims are related just because of causes of death varying, um, and Shirley's murder was definitely separate, LaDawn Roberts, Rosaline Casey, potentially Santa Melendez because her body was too decomposed for an official cause of death, right. and Elizabeth Miller could all be connected to this guy. Mm. And where I mentioned the green lighter in the beginning and they found cigarettes and cigarette butts and cigarette boxes near some of the other women Mm -hmm. what if the green lighter was from matthew stephen johnson who was known to smoke cigarettes maybe after he committed the murder right maybe he went through like so many yeah or even if he you know distracted his victims by oh let's have a cigarette burst or have a cigarette with me come outside and let's have a smoke okay good point Elizabeth was added to the Connecticut cold case deck of cards, and she is a seven of hearts. Anyone with any information on the murder of Elizabeth Miller, or honestly any of the other aforementioned victims whose cases have also gone cold, is asked to please call the Connecticut cold case tip line at 866-623-8058, or you could email tips to cold.case at ct.gov. And that is the murder of Elizabeth Miller, along with so many other unsolved cold cases from that area and from that time frame that honestly could be connected. How many women did you just list? At least 12? So many. Jesus. So many. And I thought it was so interesting, too, reading some of these names because yep. I was like, where have I heard that before? And then Santa Melendez came up. Yep. And I was like, oh, shit. A lot of these women, they were thinking, could be related to Santa's murder. Right. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I think they're probably... If not one, maybe two or three killers in there that targeted the same type of woman. How awful. Yeah. Dang. Well, guys, we want to know what you think. If you think that there was maybe some kind of serial killer in the area at the time, do you think the same person was responsible for all of these women? Please let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE, and you can send us an email of your thoughts or case suggestions for our case profile miniseries at truecrimene at gmail.com. We appreciate any and all suggestions for our case profile miniseries. We also, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. We have a handy-dandy submission tool. That is a great way to be anonymous if you so choose. We've had a couple people send cases that really hit close to home. If 
you're thinking of sending us a case and you're really not sure just because it happened really close to you or you might know the person, that is a fabulous way to still send it in and get it coverage while being anonymous. For sure. You can, of course, leave your name. And if you leave your name and you know, we decide to cover the case that you have suggested. We will give you a little shout at the top of the episode. We appreciate any and all correspondence, questions, comments, concerns, but especially suggestions for these cases. Absolutely. We got a big list and we want to keep it running so we can keep doing these for you guys. For sure. And with that, we'll see you on Thursday. Bye. Goodbye.